Hello, and welcome back to the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. My name is Sam. I am joined by my podcasting partner, movie soulmate, and the inventor of the talkie picture, Steve. Steve, how are you? Do I go back that far? Holy crap. Yeah, well, you're <laughs> you're close to death, which is why we're trying to get all your thoughts on uh, the, the written record or the recorded record for that. While they're still available, yes. I mean, your will now, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so today we're doing um, Hidden Gems by movie masters. So basically we're talking, you know, your Francis Ford Coppola's, your Steven Spielberg's, your, uh, you know, your whoever, and what movie of theirs do you think is a hidden gem that people don't talk often enough about? Um, when we chose this topic, I actually found it was really hard to find a movie from a master filmmaker that I felt didn't get its due, so to speak, because a lot of times those films, I think, tend to be well, not very good. And people <laughs> rightfully don't celebrate them. And then the ones people do celebrate are rightfully celebrated for being their best works. So it's, it was hard for me to find um, a film I you know thought a master filmmaker made that didn't get uh, its just due. But at the same time, the first movie I thought of, and then I decided to see if I could find any others, was the one I eventually chose because it was so easy to do. And that first movie is Eli Kazan's... Um, America, America. My name is Elia Kazan. I am a Greek by blood, a Turk by birth, and an American because my uncle made a journey. This story was told me over the years by the old people in my family. They remember Anatolia, the great central plateau of Turkey and Asia. And they remember the mountain air just standing above the plain. Anatolia was the ancient home of Greek and Armenian people. But 500 odd years ago, the land was overrun by the Turk. And from that day, the Greeks and the Armenians lived here, but as minorities, the Greek subject people. The Armenian subject people. They wore the same clothes as the Turk, the fez and the sandal, ate the same food, suffered the heat together, used the donkey for burdens. And they looked up to the same mountain, but with different feelings, for in fact, they were conqueror and conquered. The Turks had an army. The Greeks and the Armenians lived as best they could. But the day came here in Anatolia as everywhere where there's oppression. People began to question. There were bursts of violence, sudden and reckless. People began to wonder and some to search for another home. You say that in America they have mountains bigger than this one? In America, everything's bigger. What else? What else in America?
So I've always have trouble summarizing these damn movies, and I'm going to keep it as brief as possible. This is actually an easy one to summarize, and it is. It's about Eliak Kazan's uncle, a Greek immigrant living in Turkey in the year 1890, okay? So he's a Greek person living under the Ottoman Empire. And as you can probably infer from the title, America, America, the entire movie is an Odyssey-like journey, epic adventure of him trying to get from his small hometown in, uh, in Turkey all the way to America. That is the whole point of the movie. And obviously, he meets tons of different people along the way, and he is constantly under threat um, from Ottoman soldiers and bureaucratic officials who are always persecuting the Greek residents of Anatolia, Anatolia being the Anatolian province, or sorry, the Anatolian peninsula that Turkey is now, you know, what it is, that's what the country is, as well as the Armenians who also live there. So, you know, Anatolia, just for some historical perspective for you guys, is the peninsula that Turkey is, and for thousands of years, different people have lived there, Greeks. Um, like, for instance, the Turks are about the last people to um, settle in the Anatolian Peninsula. In fact, the Trojan War takes place in the Anatolian Peninsula. Uh, what is the where 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 does where where does the Trojan War actually take place? What's the city called? I'm kicking myself. Is it? Do you know what it is? No, no, I have no idea. I don't know why it's like the walls of. Uh, God, I'm going to kill myself for not knowing what the city is that the Greeks actually invade. But anyways, that is Anatolia, and this whole movie is about this character named uh, Stavros who is trying to get who's trying to get from his hometown all the way to America and the uh, adventures that you know he goes along the way and the type of person he results as and of course you know trying to describe this movie in a short way it took me a long time um <laughs> but it, yeah so it's Ilya Kazan and I'm going to admit right off the bat, I am biased, and I'm, a, I'm biased for one particular reason. I'm half Armenian. My mother's full Armenian. So it's very rare you see a movie where there's an Armenian character, not the main character, but also a movie that, especially back in the 60s, I think when this movie was made, uh, that acknowledges right away the Turkish treatment of the Armenians who live in that country. In fact, it's really how the movie opens up on, and... It's just very rare to see. There's not a lot of movies that um, acknowledge this at all, especially because the Turks themselves don't acknowledge it. You know, for a long time, the Turkish government has not acknowledged the Armenian genocide. Now, while the Armenian genocide takes place after this movie by a, by about a decade, um, it opens up basically where an Armenian an Armenian community is being terrorized by Turkish soldiers. Um, but for me, this is the Eli Kazan movie that's not talked about enough. I think. Uh, you know, I think if we if we just run down the list of hits, they're obviously A Streetcar Named Desire, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, obviously On the Waterfront, for which he is most famous. It might, uh, Splendor in the Grass, I'm not sure is as famous as those others, but certainly more famous than America, America. Steve, what do no. you think? Where does it, had you even heard of this movie before? I had heard it. It came up on, it comes up on Turner Classic Movies every once in a while. And I don't know why I was repelled by the thought of watching this movie. I looked at it, um... First off, and I'm ashamed to admit, I didn't recognize any of the actors. Mostly Greek cast. Mostly, there are some Americans. That's right. Um, some well-known ones too. Yes, John Marley. Well, we'll get into John incredibly. Marley in a sec. Yes, um, it, it looked like a long historical slog, and it so is. I, <laughs> well, uh, I, I mean slog in the worst sense of my my perception of it. 
Um, so I put off watching it. It it was fairly well known when it came out. It, in fact, it received several Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, which means people recognized something back then. At but the you're time. right; people stopped talking about it completely. Yeah, it's you never actually, hear about this movie. You just brought up a good point, which I think you know how I love to bash the Academy because yes. I think it's the worst. But uh, recognition from the Academy does not matter in the long run of cinema history. And at the end of the day, the movies that are classics are determined. This is going to be the most democratic thing I ever say. Are de- are determined by the people, by the masses of people that love a movie. It's really not. You know, Crash won the Oscar, and the only reason people even talk about Crash is to talk about how much it didn't deserve to win an Oscar. Um, but it, otherwise, it doesn't live up in the uh, in the zeitgeist of conversation about movies. True, but for, for people who love movies, and there's a growing number of people who can now have access to serious movies. Yeah, um, it, 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 I agree that you know. Um, People's lust for certain movies will propel a, a Titanic beyond its its due recognition. But um, you know, Vertigo yeah. still considered a masterpiece, absolutely uh, f- a failure. Yeah, uh, or uh, Citizen Kane, uh, a failure. But um, people still see it. Uh, so, and and I, I don't know. I think the the Academy can be useful. If it, if it, if anything, it can be useful in plugging. Good movies that people uh, otherwise wouldn't see. Right. That, that is, doesn't happen very often. No, I admit it, it doesn't happen It happened happen with often. Moonlight. It happened with Moonlight. Moonlight's the best example of this, which was just a fantastic film in its own right that, you know, was about two homosexual black males, or specifically one, uh, living in poverty in, what, Miami, Florida? I mean, this is not a movie made for the masses of moviegoers. So luckily, the Academy recognizing it hopefully uh, broadened its audience and people saying, you know, because there are people out there like my parents who are just like, oh, I'll just go see what wins Best Picture. Mm-hmm. I wish people weren't like that, but that's the tool in which the Academy can be useful. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't translate into a, a huge amount of... Uh... Uh, box office recognition. Probably um, more than it would have had. Otherwise. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no, no question about that. No question about that. Okay. And people got to see something that they had never seen before. Right. You know? so, so let's get back to America, America here. The movie starts off in one of the ballsiest things I've ever seen a director do, where the director voiceovers the beginning of his movie, basically saying that this is a true story about his how his uncle made it to America and then eventually brought over the rest of his family. Was it his you uncle would think or his that great that would uncle? Be a, that device would be a kiss of death. You would yeah. think that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Accusations of overindulgence, which aren't applicable to this movie, you would think that um, it would be the kiss of death. It's not. Not only that, but it opens up as if it were a a Walt Disney produced documentary. You know, kind of like those nature documentaries. It's black and white. There's a voiceover. The technique itself is not cinematic. It's not cinematic to have your director open up your movie and be like, hey, guys, here's what my movie's about. I mean, <laughs> when does that ever happen? And yet I liked it. And I found it special, and I found it um, cutting edge. Uh, but here's the thing I like about this movie. This is a movie in which the protagonist has one goal and one goal only, and he will completely cut anyone out at the knees and betray anyone who gets in his way and his goal is to make it to America so the movie begins where he's in this dirt poor town of Turkey and his father is a semi-successful businessman who is who is basically constantly being belittled and abused by the uh, Turkish bureaucrats in the town and the father's always putting up with it because he does it for the survival of a family but he tells his son he's like look I need you to go to Constantinople and 
I'm going to give you every single thing worth of any value in our family. And you need to go to Constantinople, meet your uncle who basically owns a rug business and make enough money to get the rest of us the hell out of this place and at least to the big city where we can be more prosperous. And the main character, Stavros, really has no intention of helping his own family. It's pretty despicable. You know, he, he, he's kind of torn. I you suppose. Know? <laughs> he, he's, 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 not, he's not an evil guy. He's not an evil guy at all. He's, he's not a, a, a ruthless bastard the way um, uh, uh, movies would... Um, uh, you know, if this were a, a true Hollywood movie, right. it's probably finance. You know, by Hollywood, but it, he 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 under he recognizes when he's when he's doing wrong, and he feels bad about it. Yeah, but he, he does but it, it doesn't, anyway. It doesn't stop him. He 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 does it anyway. Um, there, there was this there was this line, um, the scene where he's very uh, con- he gets confronted with. Uh, we're just going way far. No, down. it's okay. The, Go for it. He gets confronted with his uh, eventual fiance who suspects this. So she really suspects that he's going to desert her, and she yeah. pulls out all the stops. And uh, it doesn't work. No. Even though you want it to. You, the movie audience, I think the movie audience wants him to, to settle down with her. There was, this, there was this other quote that I just remembered. He said, the only, time, the only time I've had trouble, the only time I've had a bad time, was when I was soft. That's right. When I was human. Those are his words, when I was human. So he sees every every setback as you know, uh, he, as in, a result a way, of his own humanity. And in right. fact, so let's let's talk about this movie for a second. This is a movie of segments, basically a character's journey in which other characters come in and out of his life. So it's not the same set of characters throughout the entire movie, except for Stavros, who, by the way, I read is in in almost every single scene of the movie, which is incredibly hard for any lead actor to do. Yeah. But in the beginning of his journey, he's got all of his family's uh, belongings and valuables, and a thief tries to take them from him, and he calls out, thief, thief, and this other man base runs out, grabs the thief, throws him to the ground, and comes back to Stavros with all stuff, and he says, you know, uh, it was my pleasure to do this for you. Where are you going? And Stavros says, I'm headed to Constantinople. And he goes, me too. He goes, we are brothers now because I've helped you. And anything I have is yours. And anything you have is mine. And what you quickly find out is this guy doesn't have anything to give. <laughs> so really, whatever Stavros has is his. And he only he only stopped this one thief so that he himself could be the thief. But Stavros doesn't understand this in the beginning. He's kind. He's good-natured so as they make their journey for a few days this guy is constantly taking advantage of stavros getting him to buy him meals drinks eventually women and then eventually completely stabs him in the back and tells some turkish officials that stavros actually stole all of his stuff and that it was never stavros to begin with this guy is a muslim he's a turk and this is important because they are the first class citizens of society even though they even when they're poor they still matter more to the government and to do to the judicial system of turkey than the greeks and armenians and it actually eventually ends up and this is still the first quarter of the movie where stavros stabs this man to death he takes a knife that his grandmother gave him and the guy is sort of almost mocking him you know saying i've gotten away with stealing all of your stuff and then stavros has had enough and he kills the man and keeps it moving he actually says that i'm going to pray I, I think or yeah, I'm going to pray. Yeah. Uh, the guy and, says he's going to pray. Right. The Muslim and guy. And then he says, when I'm done, I'm going to kill you. 
Now this guy is really bad on tactics, you know. Yeah, you, right. you don't you don't tell somebody <laughs> to do that and then you know close your eyes. Yeah. So so uh, Slavos uh, literally stabs him in the back. This first part of the movie would have been a superb short movie, like an, an hour. Sure. It yeah. is so good. There's there's so many remarkable scenes. There's a fantastic scene early in the movie where he's with an Armenian friend. They just got a, a bunch of uh, blocks of ice. They're going to take it into town to sell them. And they come across these Turkish soldiers, and they stop them. They give them a really hard time until the Armenian friend recognizes uh, whoever's uh, heading the troops. And all of a sudden, the, the, the Turk completely changes. This is, this is really a remarkable yeah. scene yeah. because, you know, his bigotry is on the, the the Turks' bigotry is on full display right. until he finds out. Oh yeah, we used to be friends, and then he completely yeah. changes. He 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 tells he tells his troops to put the ice back on the um, on the wagon that they pulled off. I, I think j- just this one scene is incredible. How you know how we think. And how our bigotries, uh, you know... It's completely uh, based in ignorance. And when I say ignorance, yeah. I don't mean not knowing why racism is wrong. The ignorance of not realizing or knowing that the people you're being racist against, if you even knew them, you wouldn't be racist against them. And that is the point. The second this guy finds out, in fact, that the Armenian was essentially his secretary at one point. That's what he was. was, the that Ar- one, was that one? Yeah, the Armenian was in the army with this guy, and he was his secretary. And once he realizes that, he's like, oh, oh, yeah, and he completely changes his tune. It's really, it's a great um, example between essentially the differences of fascism versus interhuman connection, right? The idea of what the state tells you versus what you actually already know. That, that, that's a good point. A little bit later, we see other scenes with his father getting the same treatment. Yeah. Well, a little subtler. Yeah. So, uh, so a little subtler. Let, let's get to... um. To the thing about the wife, because this is important. Stavros, he goes on this long journey. He finally makes it in, to Constantinople. He's got no stuff with him. All of his stuff has been completely stolen by this point. And his uncle welcomes him, but is, is also like, hey, I really needed that stuff because that's what I was going to use to finance our rug business. Like, without all this material to sell... We actually don't have a plan. He goes... So because yeah, he has a lot of crummy rugs. Yeah, exactly. He, he sleeps the whole day. Right. Uh, Stavros comes in and... Uh, right. So, so he tells Stavros, maybe Stavros. what we can do is we can actually marry you off to a rich single girl and we can use the dowry to fund our business. And Stavros is incredibly turned off by this idea and he, he leaves the uncle very quickly to go live on the streets. And about a year passes, he's living on the streets... He's barely making ends meet. He's trying to save up enough money to buy his ticket to America and is in this section of the film that we come across the first, uh, I don't know if he's a major actor in Hollywood, but somebody you will have recognized if you like movies, which is John Marley. John Marley played the film producer who woke up with his favorite prized horse's head in his bed. You know, the guy who famously... In The Godfather, In The yes. Godfather, yeah. the, the man who famously said, and a man in my position cannot be made to look ridiculous. <laughs> so it's a really... I mean, this is one of these performances where this guy, uh, John Marley, plays. He's a fellow street person. He's been on the street a long time. He's also an anarchist. Um, this is the part where Stavros sort of falls in with radical politics. And the guy is a total cynic, but he's got some great lines in this movie and i'm going to tell you one of them so at one point 
uh, he's always asking Stavros how much money he's made because he knows Stavros is trying to get to America making these moves. Uh, he's trying to get to America with the small amount of money that he makes. And the guy tells Stavros, he goes, there's two kinds of money, small money and big money. Small money's a whore. Big money is fertile. It procreates. <laughs> and what he's telling uh, Stavros is that you can't work to save. He goes, if you're working to save, you're never going to make the money you need. What you need to do is marry a rich woman, which is the thing that Stavros tried not to do. Uh, Steve, I'll let you take it from here. Well, Stavros discovers he lacks certain skills to be able to do that. Um, But before that, uh, he decides that uh, he's got to find these skills. So he goes to a uh, brothel. That's right. Uh, John Marley character takes him to a brothel. Uh, he wakes up only to find out that he has been robbed again. Yeah, by by the by the by the prostitute yes. um, who is behind on her own rent. Right, and in, she, and it's very heart tugging. We yeah, find out that, that she the only reason she stole it was to give it to her pimp, whoever or madam, whoever uh, runs runs yeah. the. Um, she says you know. something very poignant. She goes. Basically, she needs to to rob from Stavros to pay her rent, and she goes without a bed and a room. I am I'm an no- animal. Yeah. Oh, I, I thought she said I am nothing, but you're right. She said I am an animal. She says yeah. I'm an animal, and isn't that interesting? How that is the line for human beings. Um, the the literally the threshold between civilization and being a part of the animal kingdom, which is four walls and a bed. I thought it was a very moving line because her bar that she's set for her whole life is so low. This is the bare minimum that she needs in life. Otherwise, she is an animal. And if you think about it, it's a good point. It's it's why we classify the homeless versus those living in extreme poverty different because of those four walls and a bed. Yeah. She is she is she is um desperation personified. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so Stavros, he's getting mixed up with these anarchist street urchin type people and they're holding a meeting in which they're discussing how they're going to commit acts of terrorism against the Ottoman Empire. And in this meeting, I guess somehow the Ottomans find out and they start blasting gunfires, gun, you know, gunfire and rifle shots through the windows of this meeting, killing almost everyone in it. And Stavros is badly injured and in fact the doctors who are who are basically confirming all the dead bodies think that he's about to die, and they just say, throw him on the pile with the rest of the dead bodies, and Stavros actually falls off the cart that's riding to toss dead bodies into the sea, into the Mediterranean, which is a really interesting scene, right? So they just killed all these people, and they're tossing their bodies into the Mediterranean, and I had the thought that I had, I had the same thought watching it, that I had when I went and actually swam in the Mediterranean in Greece. And I thought to myself, how many dead bodies have been thrown in this sea? Because the Mediterranean Sea is, it's the prize of ancient civilization, right? It is it is what the the world revolved around um, west of China. And I, and I kept thinking to myself, how many indiscriminate bodies were tossed into the Mediterranean Sea? Probably more than any other body of water in history. What do you think? Uh, you know, I've never taken a tally. I got. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't uh, count them. <laughs> but it it is a good point. It, it's a it's a stunning scene. A st- stunning scene. He's on this death wagon, yeah. an old death wagon pulled by uh, horses. He half falls off, half kind of crawls out, barely under his own power. Yeah. And um, he eventually uh, he gets he gets help from somebody. Um, 
Well, yeah, I mean, somebody, I think, yeah, somebody recognizes him as, like, barely alive and helps him. But mm-hmm. it all ends up with Stavros going back to his uncle and agreeing to the arranged marriage uh, that he had previously run away from. And this is important. Stavros has got it made right now. He's wearing nice clothes. He's found a pretty rich girl with a very nice family and a very welcoming father-in-law who's got a lot of money where he will be taken care of for the rest of his life. Well, you said pretty. Well, now, she doesn't think did. she's pretty. I thought she was okay. Well, the family didn't. Yeah. That was one of the yeah. kind of funny yeah, lines. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. She's 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 single because she's not viewed as pretty. I, I guess she's she she's movie ugly, which yeah. means not yeah. ugly at all. But yeah, exactly. Um, but but she, not not she's not a starlet. Uh, he uh, Sta- uh, Stavros Stavros sends a picture of her to his family. His family's looking at it, and one of one of the girls says, "Well, you know, they say a long nose uh, means virtue." And then I think the father says, um, "She's got virtue for days." Well, well what he said is, uh, "With that kind of nose, virtue is inevitable." <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So, yeah, Kazan can't can't resist the polish, well, like those scenes have. He's been, by this point, I mean, this is towards the the end of his not the end of his career, but the end of his impactful career, the career that mm-hmm. people look back on. And yeah. at this point, he's been working in the Hollywood system for a long time. He's a highly polished filmmaker. This is not the guy making a streetcar desire where people think he's edgy and, you know, he, this is a guy, a master. I think well, there is some, some he's degree a of edginess to this movie. Sure, but, but he's a he, master by this yeah. point. And yes. I think a lot of the thing about being masters is that they are polished. Yeah. They, they lack that that sort of edge that the Safdie brothers are known for. It's just hard. The more they make movies, the more they become polished, and the more that polish, you know, comes through. If I was, I was going to say the um, the Muslim friend that he picks up that turns out to be uh, an yeah. enemy, there's something very polished about that character, too. You almost spot him right from the beginning. Yeah. At, at first he's entertaining, and then he becomes the villain. Um, there's... A, it's an, it's it's a minor gripe, yeah. But I would have liked to see something a little more, a little edgier. Well, part of the part of the polish in this movie is that half the actors have American accents. Luckily, Stavros, and the other half got dubbed. I think no, not Stavros. Stavros, no. that's him. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, that's, right. that's him. But but other, I think other actors. I, I'm pretty sure that they got dubbed. Maybe because of a. a the good thing accent. about these older movies is mm-hmm. that they dub everybody. Like nothing, none of the sound that's recorded on set is ever used, and. As a result, it's less obvious versus when you see a new movie and the dubbing can sometimes be clunkier, more obvious when they're not using the sound, the natural sound from set. Um, But the point is this about the arranged marriage he's going to get into. He could be well taken care of the rest of his life and he'll have money good family, everything will be provided for him. And yet he still wants to go to America where his future is uncertain. And this is the part now where I want to sort of break off, I want to talk about Eli Kazan. Um, because we're talking about now the promise of America. What does America represent? And I, the unfortunate thing about Eli Kazan's career is that it is impossible to talk about his career without somebody bringing up what he did. In fact, I have a friend who said that what Eli Kazan did was so wrong that it affects his ability to enjoy his movies. I personally don't agree on both fronts. Um, I don't think that what some what someone's personal life is like, unless they're, you know, a Nazi or, you know, molesting children, I, I don't think, you know, that it's something where it really affects the art. I think the art is separate from the artist. And I think that as, as uh, Americans, at least, we, we too often 
become more fascinated by the artist than the art they create. And I think it's the art they create that's important. But then the other thing is what he actually did. I actually, I think it's wrong what he did, but it's such a tight spot and one that I've never been in my life. And in case you don't know this, Eli Kazan at one point in his life was a Hollywood liberal, borderline radical who had association with some communist political groups. And during the HUAC period in which uh, Joseph McCarthy, you know, started trying to find out who in Hollywood. Well, not, not, not Joseph McCarthy. He had nothing to do with that. But, not uh, not the Eli Kazan one. Oh, not not the Hollywood blacklist and all okay, that. Okay, fair he, enough. He's he strictly military. Yeah, fair enough. I only make this point because, um, uh, not to get too too deep yeah. into it. One was for the military and government. The other was cultural. And the cultural was led by Richard Nixon, Cohen, Bobby okay, Kennedy. Okay, fair. I, that yeah. that I didn't know. Yeah. But the point is, they put Eli Kazan on the stand, and he's already seen how this play uh, plays out. Where if he doesn't name names, he's over. He's ruined. His career's ruined. And as a result, he names names. Now, while I think that you can just say, at least I personally believe naming names was wrong, I've never been in that situation. Nobody's ever put my entire life on the line and said, all you have to do is rat out your fellow man and ruin their ability to work. So I'm less judgmental of what Eli Kazan did. And I think that people who do judge him they should really think if they've ever been in a spot like that before where their integrity and their dignity held up under such intense pressure. Um, I haven't been in that situation where I've needed to sacrifice all for the sake of my honor. So I would be um, definitely throwing a stone at a gl- through a glass house, I guess, or whatever that phrase is, if I were to totally condemn him for what he did. I can condemn a child molester because I've never molested children, right? That part's easy. But something like this is a little different where the morality of it is murkier. Um, And I think what a lot of people have a problem with Eli Kazan is not just that he did it, but that he sought so hard after he did it to justify it. He took out letters explaining why he thought, you know, communism was so wrong and how he had been led so astray. Now, Steve, since you differ politically from me, you might think he was sincere. I personally believe not that he was insincere, but that it was a psychological way of gripping with what he had done. I had heard that he was enthusiastic. Some people said that he was backed into a corner. Some people thought that um, this was genuine. That he he loved America so much, and that he he had uh, I guess uh, adopted such conservative views, that he was only too happy um, to name names. I can't believe that. Mm-hmm. Based off of all the humanity in his films, I can't believe that. It just doesn't, and it's not because I'm hoping to not believe it. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't seem logical. And he was called. He didn't volunteer. He was called, and that's important. Someone mm-hmm. who had been all too happy. For instance, Walt Disney in one of the great. And one of the great things that ever happened, just in terms of pure hilarity, was dealing with union issues at Walt Disney Company. And Walt Disney treated his employees terribly. So as a result, he was constantly going to HUAC trying to name names. And in fact, at one point, they told him, they're like, you know what, man? Like, these aren't actually communists. Even HUAC didn't want Walt <laughs> Disney's names. He was just trying to win these labor disputes. Um, but I think that, you know, the really interesting thing about Eli Kazan, not only the fact that he did this, not only the fact that he sought out to justify it afterwards, but he made the best movies of his career after he did it. He made On the Waterfront, A Face in the Crowd, and America, America, which I think if you were going to make a, like a small DVD collection set, those are the three masterpieces. Those are the three undeniable Kubrick-level filmmaking movies. 
It's kind of difficult. Uh, I think anybody who would condemn him today should look at Hollywood today and see how how um, politically broad-minded they are. And I think they would see that uh, there is more than a, a passing uh, resemblance to the, the, in my opinion, to the McCarthy McCarthy Act. You're the, saying in the vice versa, basically, that if you're a conservative with conservative viewpoints in Hollywood, you're not going to get work. Right. Yeah. So I think they should they should be a little uh, not quite self-righteous because of the what I call McCarthy tactics when, uh, of course, McCarthy didn't have anything to do with, uh, didn't have di- anything directly to do with uh, no. HUAC. Some yeah. people say, well, he, he created the environment yeah. that inspired it with his with him going after people in, in the government. Um, I, I think uh, he who's without sin cast the first stone if. You, uh, if you find a filmmaker who is without flaws, uh, yeah. please let me know. I think you're not going to go to very many movies, though. Well, yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. And what I always remember uh, was when they gave Eliak Kazan the Honorary Academy Award, the Lifetime Achievement. They cut to a shot of Nick Nolte of all people refusing, and Ed Harris. Yes, yeah, but but Ugh. I don't know anything about Ed Harris. Uh-huh. But Nick Nolte of all people refusing to stand, and you know. The rap sheet on Nick Nolte is so long. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe, like, first of all, maybe you should be cutting to Tom Hanks not standing or, you know, some guy with no controversy surrounding him. But to see Nick Nolte not standing for this guy, I thought really said it all, where it's like <laughs> Nick Nolte's rap sheet is 10 times longer than Eliak Kazan's, but he felt, you know, morally superior to him, which is just an absolute joke. Right. It, it, uh, the treatment of some of the people in Hollywood right. on that night was, was disgraceful, I thought. So so here's um, here's why Ned, uh, Warren Beatty, who of course worked with him yeah. in Splendor in the Glass, stood up and gave him an applause. And, and, and by the and way, that took guts. That Warren took guts. Beatty, a big lefty, big in lefty, Hollywood. always stayed a lefty. Yeah. but you know he he could see past that. He saw to the art. So. Yeah, it just it's not. This is not a Harvey Weinstein crime. This is yeah. an unfortunate choice made by someone in a position where every either choice he was going to make was going to be wrong. He could either save himself his ability to make movies. Or he could throw under other people under the bus. But here's why I think the connection is so prevalent to this film. This man knows what it took for his family to get to America. And I think, you know, he was going to be damned if he threw it all away. You know, and to him, you know, the ability to work and make a living and live out his dreams in America, it was going to all be gone if he didn't name names. And this is a guy, when you watch this movie, is hyper aware of what it took for his whole family to get there. So his uncle killed a guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And his uncle, his uncle killed a guy. He betrayed many people. You know, he absolutely lived on the streets. I mean, it's just. So I think this movie is a, is a very good example into the... It's a better example into the mind of Eliak Kazan than On the Waterfront was. You know, I love On the Waterfront. It's obviously a defense of what he did, and yet I don't see the movie that way. I choose not to watch it that way. Mm-hmm. I choose to watch On the Waterfront for all its other themes and not its theme of like, hey, unions are corrupt and full of commies or whatever it is, or, or just <laughs> gangsters. You know, I just think On the Waterfront's a, a masterful film, but people look at that movie who already judge Eliak Kazan for what he did, and they just condemn the movie as pure, you know, justification propaganda. I think this is the better. If he wanted to make a case for why he did what he did without justifying what he did, this is the better movie because it shows how precious America is to him, and not not the idea that he feels that America is being threatened by communism, but just look, man, it took too much sacrifice from too many people for me to be in the position I'm in to just throw it all away.
Well, like like you said, it's it's you, you have people incredibly privileged who who saw their their way blanketed. You know, they, they have a practically a, a red carpet yeah. laid out for them. How dare they? Uh, you know, con- yeah. condemn Kazam for what he did. And as a political conservative, you know, uh, one, I'm not too crazy about communists. And back then, communists weren't <laughs> these you know innocent uh, crackpots on a, on a campus. They're they're um, they were. You know, fairly dangerous. You mean they weren't a Lyndon LaRouche subgroup? Right, right. However, as also as a conservative, uh, the conservatives who went after the Hollywood should have known better. You know, the government isn't used to oppress other points of view, even if you don't like them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, okay, so, so they were using, um, you know, movies as analogies to the Communist Party. Well, they didn't seem to mind that when they were doing it rather overtly in World mm-hmm. War II, you know, when yeah. we had Russia, I mean, sorry, the Soviet Union as our ally, and you saw that through a lot of movies, that, and nobody kicked up uh, too much of a fuss. Uh, the government had no right to do what it did. Right. Absolutely. I have a, a great deal of sympathy for Ilya Kazan. I do too. Especially, especially if he was sincere and he thought that he was helping, you know... Um, Avert this, this, you know. I'm the communist. opposite. I have less sympathy for him <laughs> if that was his view, and I have more yeah. sympathy for him that this was a guy put between a rock and a hard place, right. and most people in their life have not been put between that. Most people I know who judge him have not been put between that kind of rock and a hard place. Yeah. Now, before I get to my five questions for you, uh, the thing you know I, I didn't really actually get to ask you is, do you like this movie, and if so, why? This movie is a masterpiece. Yes, thank you. This is, the movie is a masterpiece. We haven't even gotten to the two scenes that are incredibly remarkable and I think incredibly rare. Uh, this, these scenes could have been directed by George Cukor. They're, they're so... Wait, who? What? George Cukor, uh, you know, the guy. <laughs> you can't, that's too deep cut, Steve. I don't even know who that is. You gotta, yeah, you gotta uh, tell the people. Uh, George Cukor, he, 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 he specialized in making uh, women's movies. He, okay. he originally directed uh, Gone with the Wind until they fired him because Gable got sexually insecure. Oh, wow. Uh, Cukor was a, was a homosexual. Oh, okay. He, he did phenomenal movies, you know, My Fair Lady, Gaslight, all these movies that gave... Uh, you know, women, it's incredible. The Philadelphia story, gotcha. all these great movies. Uh, they have two incredibly uh, intense scenes where he uh, has to deal with women. One was his, his fiance, and she she has to almost humiliate herself. She, she's very understanding. She understands his... She's his, begging him to stay. She's begging him, yes. Yeah. She'll go with him. She even offers to go with him. But she she says, give it a year. Yeah. Now, earlier, her father was laying out his life right in front of him, yeah. full of the good life and getting fat and, and that, that, that being a sign of prosperity, which it was back Absolutely. then, not ironically, yeah. you know. Not in America. No, not, not <laughs> now. now Because uh, now you can get fat off a of KFC and it doesn't imply you have any money. Unfortunately, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's a very vulnerable scene. It's a beautifully made scene. And it is surpassed by a later scene where he um, he, he has interactions with this American couple. Uh, it's obviously a, a once beautiful woman who is married to this old, um, you know, corrupt American, American American Armenian businessman. Oh, that's right. She she isn't actually a, um, yeah. she isn't she's she wasn't Greek. born in America. She was born in she, she's from Turkey. She's yes. Greek, and she's married to an American Armenian businessman who comes back to Turkey to conduct business. Yes. And Stavros basically initiates an affair with her, and I believe that she pays his ticket to get to America. And I'm not, I don't want to spoil too much, 
Um, and also her husband, who doesn't realize the affair is happening, offers him a job in America. Yeah. Am I correct oh, on that? that? Wasn't, that wasn't it terribly wasn't made clear. clear. No, no. And but in fact, she, I had to reread the plot on Wikipedia uh-huh. to understand that was the case. Yeah. Maybe a, a storytelling flaw in the movie. Right. I, well, I, I think they wanted you to assume that since he was there, yeah. uh, he was there at the good graces of, of this American... Of uh, his patron. Couple. Yeah, of this patron. And she she has to be vulnerable. She 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 tells why she is in the situation she was young and beautiful and she had this this you know this older guy who only saw her as as as, you know arm candy yeah a trophy it is one of the most naked honest stripped yeah uh uh scenes that i've ever seen and what a beautiful woman by the way i know she's dead and has rats crawling out of her eyes but boy was she good looking (laughs) you you went kind of kind of weird there well it's (laughs) weird it's always it's always weird to me as a young man to see it like I wonder what it's going to be like when I'm 80 years old and Britney Spears is 80 years old and try and tell my kids. Or like, let's say Britney Spears dies before I do. And then I try and show like, you know, my grandkids pictures of Britney Spears like when she was 22. <laughs> like, you don't understand. You know, so I always think it's weird when I see a lady who I know is dead and I'm mm-hmm. saying to myself, boy, she was a looker. Well, that's true. You you look at one of these later By pictures. By the way, this of, applies to men too. Yes. Gary Grant has worms crawling out of his eyes too, ladies. <laughs> And there's probably some women so who would still yeah. go out with so him. So if you find a man handsome from the 1940s, he's dead, he's a corpse, he's a skeleton, there's flesh rotting off his bones. <laughs> you can tell the actress who plays this that she was, you know, 20 years before, an incredible beauty. Yeah. And as she tells um, Stavros this, it's, it's so... Um, it's intense. It's modern and revealing. Yes, it is. It's something I hadn't seen. I can't remember seeing a, a scene like this right. in this movie shot this way. There is no slickness yeah. in this scene. Yeah, there's right. no Hollywood artifice. artifice. There, there's no sympathy from Star Wars. It's Starbos. what great art does. Yes, it's, it's revealing and it and it makes us look. These are. Here's the thing great art does, and I'm going to use The Crown as an example, which I think, by the way, for anyone listening, is the best thing on television right now and possibly being possibly the best thing being made in the world. Whoa. Okay, yeah, that's how I feel about The Crown. But if you are able to use characters who you have nothing relatable to in the situation of your lives, right, whether it be the royal family or a... Turkey, a Greek immigrant from Turkey married to an American Armenian businessman. And if you can find common ground in the struggles of your own lives, that is what great art does. And that's why it's so important when these moments, when somebody you have nothing in common with shares something so revealing that you also see it in yourself. Yeah, you wouldn't think that this situation would have anything to do yeah. with you, and yet you recognize right. it. You recognize her pain and her right. shame. Right. It, it is amazing. And this is why I always have to defend the crown, yeah. by the way, to people, because people always say to me, I don't care about the royal family, and I say, neither do I. That's the great achievement. Yeah. The great achievement is that of all, that if anyone in the world where they could uh, use people to illuminate the human condition, they were able to do it with the royal family of all people. What an achievement. People yeah. that, you know, who live in a situation so outside the norms of anyone's life and yet they're able to make the connections anyways yeah. continue back to the back to this scene when it's over again i don't want to give up give away too much he's putting in a compromised position he doesn't come entirely betray her no he, and he feels sympathy he's not a monster his journey doesn't doesn't um uh create a monster my favorite line if i can remember it please 
and, and I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's delusional. Or and we're not. gonna. I'm glad you're getting to this. So let's get to favorite lines. I think it's probably a little delusional. He says, "My honor is safe inside me," and it's not. <laughs> and it's something his father said too. Yes. And his father was delusional. All right. So let's let's get to favorite lines and let's connect it back to the previous scene where his fiance is begging him to stay. She even says she even offers to go with him. And if, in my opinion, if he had taken her with him he wouldn't be casting her aside and creating, you know, some uh, some great sin, so to speak, by hurting her. And he says something. He goes, in America, I will be washed clean. And that means by bringing her, he's not washed clean. He has to completely purge himself of everything that existed in his life so he can go to a new land and be a completely new man where nobody knows him. And I think that's really important. That's a good point, but it also speaks to... Uh... I don't want to. I don't want to say it's a problem I have with this movie, other than his drive for America. In in parts of the movie, he becomes very enigmatic. Like you can't read him apart from his direction towards America. It might be his amateurishness as an actor. This mm-hmm. was an actor. This was basically his first major acting gig. And honestly, I think that for someone who was so untrained, he was just fantastic. He carries the movie. See, I think he, I think he's terrific. Yeah, I think he's terrific and too. I think I don't want to say it's the fault because it could be very well intended. Mm-hmm. You know, he is so focused. I'm not going to let you know whether he's in love with that girl because I kind of suspected yeah. he was. Oh, he either in love her. with her or he was extremely sympathetic. Absolutely, to her, absolutely, you know? he was extremely sympathetic. He, but. It's not going to stop him. But these That's are the not, sacrifices. It's hard to tell, and you don't find out until he delivers a line. That says, I forget which one it is, but where it's it kind of, he indicates he's going to go. Yeah, she says, like, you know, I, I know I'm not pretty, and he doesn't give her what he wants. He goes like, well, that doesn't matter. Yes. Like, you know, not not what she's trying to hear, right? He, he's, he supposed, doesn't, he's supposed yes. to say she's beautiful, but he no, doesn't. No, 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 you're, you're, you're spectacular. No, you're... Yeah, but he yeah. doesn't do it. Um, so so I'm going to get to the five questions now, okay. and, and we'll start with the first one, which is best line. Um, for me, I, I wrote down a few lines. By the way, just a little tidbit. Um, this movie's name um, in other places in the world is The Anatolian Smile. Interesting... Uh, Interesting name for a movie. Yeah, because he doesn't smile very yeah, much no, after never. he gets out of Anatolia. There's no smiles in the Anatolia. <laughs> he doesn't bring it with him. <laughs> okay, so here are the lines I, I wrote down, and I'll tell you which one I like the most. There's two kinds of money, small money and big money. Small money's a whore. Big money is fertile. It procreates. And then she says, and it was just, so when she says, I wish I were prettier for you, and he says, don't worry about that. <laughs> Another one is he says, I believe in America. I will be washed clean. And then uh, I think the... Uh, the, oh, and then another one he says is, after a time, you don't feel the shame. I have that written right here. After a time, you don't feel the shame. That's his father, right? Yeah, that's his father. Trying he, to explain away his humiliations in front of the But the best line is none of those. When he's talking to his grandmother before he leaves the town, she is just running down his father and what a whore he is uh, for the Turks. And she says... The reason the wolf loves the rabbit is the rabbit doesn't have any teeth. <laughs> Just what a line. Because, like, you know, the idea is these government officials are constantly telling Stavros' father how much they respect him, how much they love him, what a pillar of the community he is. But the truth is he just has no backbone. He has no mm-hmm. spine. And it's really, this is a tough old lady. She lives in a cave. I'm not kidding. She actually lives in a cave. And she is the one who gives Stavros the knife, which eventually he will kill 
uh, the guy who his companion who joins him on a leg of the journey. But for me, that is the line. The reason the wolf loves the rabbit is the rabbit doesn't <laughs> have any teeth. No, that, that's a it's a very telling scene because oh, sorry, he is willing. Sorry, there's one more. Uh, okay, I'm not going to say what it's about because it'll give away the ending. But somebody says to Stavros, "You're baptized again and without benefit of clergy." But I don't want to say who says it or why because it's giving away the ending. All right, go on. Yeah, so it's almost uh, it's almost yeah. a little too. Let's clever. not give away the ending, <clears throat> although it's kind of clear. Yeah. I, I can wrap. The, I, I guess I can wrap this up. Yeah, this movie it's very episodic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but each segment it's, it's kind of a long movie. It's, very long. It's, it's, it's two hours and forty minutes, yeah. guys. This is a two taper. We're talking two VHS tapes. <laughs> you, I think you could cut this up in. in into um, three different movies. Absolutely. This could have been a volume one, volume two, volume three. He condenses it. Um, it's 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 a masterpiece. I've, I've, I wasn't anticipating. The reason you should screen. never do that, by the way, is that you'll fall into what happened to the guy who made Mongol. Mongol is a fantastic movie that is about the first stretch of Genghis Khan's life, and it didn't make enough money, and now we'll never get the other two. <laughs> and that's a, that's a, it's a good reason he made it one movie. Because if that movie didn't make money, there's a good chance he would not have gone to make the other two. All right, uh, so can I keep asking more questions, or do you sure? Have, no, no, no. Or no, was no. your favorite line uh, the one about shame? After a time, you don't feel the shame. That that one was very startling. Okay. But I also like the I, I like the, the the line where he says, um, uh, "My honor is hidden inside me," because at that point you don't even know if he even believes it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he's done so many things, but he has to believe it. Okay, who is the villain of this movie? The villain of this movie. Who is it? <laughs> well, you want to say Stavros because he does a lot of damage. It's Stavros for me, baby. He does a lot of damage. He does a lot of damage. Yeah. Um, he, he, obviously, um, he's not the only person, you know. No, he's not but, the only but the Turks, person. the Turks are a catalyst in this That's movie. That's right. The That's Turks right. are a catalyst. Um, he, is an, he is an imperfect hero. He's not an anti-hero. You no. sympathize he's with him. You want him to succeed. That's right. He's not, a, he's not evil. Yes, and there is decency inside him, but uh, that decency gets uh, he leaves gets a lot drowned, of, he leaves drowned a, in the bathtub. He leaves a he lot of collateral to. in his way. Yes, he does. Okay, yeah. next one. Where does it rank amongst Kazan's films? For you, for me, uh, I th- I think it's better. I think it's his best movie. You think it's his I best think movie. it's best than better than On the Waterfront. I even. do too. I uh, think it's his best movie as well. Yeah. And I rate, I rate his movies in reverse order in his three masterpieces. I think his three masterpieces that he made in order are his three masterpieces in reverse order. And what I mean by that is I think America, America is his best movie. Then I think A Face in the Crowd is his second best movie. And then I think On the Waterfront is his third best movie. I don't even consider A Face in the Crowd necessarily a masterpiece. Oh, but, it's such uh, a masterpiece. Yeah. And beyond just the writing, the film, the filmmaking in A Face in the Crowd is probably his best filmmaking, just from He's, pure cinematography, music, all that jazz. He, he is incredibly accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I don't know. When I see A Face in the Crowd, I, I, I tend to think of it as similar to Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. Okay, more questions. Which character steals the movie? Who, who in, in a movie of episodic characters, which one is the most dynamic? The most dynamic? Yeah, the one you like the most. The most memorable character who only comes in the movie for a brief period. Well, you know, you got John Marley as the old sage. Sure. You know, it's, it's hard not to, is that not, it for not you? to like him. Um, the, the most memorable one was, was the, uh, the, the, American, the, the Armenian-American wife. Who, okay. whose performance was so startling. Gotcha. In just a few short scenes. Yeah, that's a good one. For me, it's got to be the grandma. 
The grandma <laughs> is just the toughest, tough old bird. toughest old bird, so smart, whip smart. You know, at one yeah. point Stavros is ramsacking her cave looking for money, and she says it's on my person, daring him to strip her. I mean, it's just the ball. I think that's, that's the one yeah. thing he doesn't do. Yeah, the ball's on. She saw him right away for what he was. Yeah. Right away. He wasn't coming back, and he was going to leave nothing but collateral in his wake. And the only thing she gives him of any worth is a knife to kill someone. Okay, uh, next one. Is the old world so much different from the new world? Um, I'd have to say yes. Yeah, I'm going to go with yes, too. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm absolutely going to go with yes. You didn't yeah. have soldiers, you know, in, in 1901 America kicking out... Well, God, now we're going to get, I'm going to go with, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're going to, well, yeah. what about, yeah, well, there's um, going to be a lot of, well, there's always what about, there's a lot of what about, there's, there's um, but I'm going, yes, the old world was definitely different. And there's a reason that in the Ellis Island period era of America, people got in so easily and so many people wanted to come. America's so much different now. If you could just make it to America during the Ellis Island period and you weren't tuberculuncular, if you didn't have, if you didn't have tuberculosis, <laughs> didn't have consumption. <laughs> yeah, if you didn't have consumption, you were going to get in. Yeah. I mean, it was really that simple. It's totally different now. You can't just, hey, I made it. You know, let me in. Um, okay, next one. This is more specific. Why did he take less money? And what I mean by that is when he is... Uh, negotiating with his soon-to-be father-in-law over the size of the dowry, the father-in-law says, I will give you $500, basically. And Stavro says, I don't agree. And the father-in-law goes, what? Like, how could you not agree to this? He goes, I only want 110 Why did he do it? <laughs> well, because the importance of the, the number 110. 110 was right. the cost of the ticket that would get sure. him uh, on, on a cruise line across but America. But why not take more? I guess he's just saying uh, that he wants, he's signaling to the audience, and this is a slickness. Yeah. That might, he's too, too slick, slick for his own, yeah. too, too good for, uh, too slick for his own good. He's signaling to the audience, he's not staying. Okay. He's so, going to get that 110 and he's going to beat feet. For me, it's justification for his conscience. If I only take what I need to leave, I'm not a thief. Versus if he took more than he needed for the ticket, he'd be a thief. I'd buy that. that that's my justification. That's, that's why I think he took less money. Mm. Okay, so now is the time for piss poor pitches. Um, basically, the idea is in Hollywood, in case you guys don't know this, they love if you're trying to pitch a movie to network executives or to you know studio executives, where you take two movies that both made a lot of money and you say, it's like my movie's like Lord of the Rings meets the Avengers, right? And they say, oh my gosh, this is going to make tons of money. What a great movie your movie's going to be. So here is my piss poor pitch for America, America, and it is Schindler's List meets my big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> okay, so that, okay, that, I that. So, so Steve's gonna do so Steve's gonna do a piss poor pitch later for his movie, and I think it's time we actually go to that movie, which is Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. I just think we ought to wait till after you graduate. I don't. It's only a month. Janet, a month. Please. Sorry. I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations. David, no. Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment I'm in your... staying right here. Oh? Afraid you'll say yes? I'll see you tonight at Brandon's party. Okay. You can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye. Bye. 
That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely and the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, and the two who were responsible for everything, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. Now, Steve suggested this movie to me. I had never heard of it before, and it's another pretty easy movie to summarize. Two psychotic, upper-crust Harvard graduate males who live together in a swanky Manhattan apartment in the very first scene of the movie kill a friend of theirs. And they kill the friend of theirs for no other reason than they could, because they wanted to, because they were enthralled by the idea of committing the perfect murder that they could get away with, because they see themselves as superior beings to the rest of us, where they can commit a murder, get away with it, and that makes them superior. And then they decide to take the body, put it in a chest in their living room, and throw a party in which people will eat hors d'oeuvres off the chest that the body is currently being stored in. And they're going to throw this party, and for them, it's going to be a totally different type of party than for the rest of the people where they're going to be living on the knife's edge, where there's a dead body of someone they just killed hours earlier in this chest and none of their guests are aware of it and they invite you know these upper crust new york socialite type people but one of the people they also invite is the former headmaster of their prep school played by jimmy stewart and the reason they invite him is because he is the man that in their eyes um, inspired this murder where Jimmy Stewart is a proponent of sort of the Superman, the Nietzschean Superman, the idea that if you are superior intellectually, that also makes you morally superior, that morality and intellectual and, and uh, your, your intellect are directly connected and that if you're smarter, you're also morally better and what you do is always justified. So they invite Jimmy Stewart to this party and it becomes clear to Jimmy Stewart right away that something is wrong here. Uh, Steve, why did you choose this for your, uh, for your hidden gem amongst Alfred Hitchcock's pictures? I chose it because I, I don't think it gets its proper due. And the chief among those who don't give it its proper due is Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. Okay, interesting. Go Alfred on. Alfred Hitchcock um, thought that this is kind of an experimental movie in that there's no edits. Well, I So explain, say no. yeah. So go into yeah. detail on this. What Hitchcock wanted to do, he he wanted to make a fluid movie that had virtual almost no edits. Birdman in style this movie, here. Birdman in 1917. Okay, right. Yeah. Now they were somewhat limited because obviously they don't have the cuts um, are computers. fairly obvious. The cuts are fairly obvious, but yes. that's okay. It's still a fluid movie. Right. Um, some of them are sort of crafty, where the yeah. where the um uh, camera swings around, say the chest. Yeah. And that's where they um they make the edits because the, the camera back then could only hold I don't know six or eight or nine minutes worth of film. Ten minutes. They, it's ten, ten minutes. minutes. And ten what minutes. they and what they did was every time they needed to make the cut, they would bring the camera into an object in which the object was essentially black and would darken the camera, the darken the image, so that way they could make the black cut and you wouldn't notice. So like mm-hmm. at one point, they, they, they go directly in on somebody's coat so that all you can see is the blackness of the coat 
and that's the cut, and then they come back out, and it's a new reel of film. Well, sometimes it was it was done cleverly. Sometimes it was done so obvious. I guess they they were desperate. They, they uh, Hitchcock didn't have an idea. I guess. Yeah. I, I hate to slight him. Hitchcock wanted to see if he could, you know, if I, I guess he thought it, this was kind of an experiment in pure cinema mm-hmm. where the camera does everything. Yeah. And and you don't leave it up to editing. Although there are a few edits. Uh, not not very many though. Jimmy Stewart's um, on record saying he doesn't think the movie worked, and that all the rehearsals in the movie were rehearsing for the camera. That the actors weren't really rehearsing to act; they were rehearsing so that the camera knew where to go. And he, you know, he thought that was <laughs> well, how dare they? You know, you know that's you know that's when um, Hitchcock's old line about. Uh, you know, actors are cattle and they just shut up and do what the director says. Comes kind of comes into play. Mm-hmm. I love Jimmy Stewart, and I yeah. think he is very good in this He's movie. Awesome in this movie. He is fantastic. He's awesome. I think Hitchcock. He, Hitchcock came to believe that this was a failure, essentially, okay. because he, he he wound up editing, quote unquote, editing by his camera movements. But that's what I love about this movie. I love movies that do that. And I don't just mean single take movies, but just movies that are shot in sequence. I think it's so... I really have never enjoyed the idea of coverage. What the guys like uh, David Fincher do, where you cover... I can't imagine trying to edit a movie where you have one scene shot in a thousand different angles. It seems terrible like why would you put yourself through that you know the, the old movie the old movie style you know what they used to do they'd have a line of dialogue right yep. they, they'd shoot a close-up of one person reading the dialogue then they'd shoot a close-up of the second person doing the dialogue then all the entire dialogue then they'd shoot a two shot then they'd shoot a wide shot and they'd do an extremely wide shot and let the woman um i forgot what her name is she she's a legendary uh dd um, allen no no oh, not she's her. the one who directed your movie america america you mean and, she edited it? I'm sorry, she edited it. Oh, you know, it. you're right. I'm sorry. I knew she did one of the two movies. Yeah, she, she, I'm she's sorry, fantastic. She, she yes. edited oh my uh, gosh. She edited America, America. Dog Day right. Afternoon. Yeah. Just all these great yeah. movies. Um, but th- th- this was a famous editor, and she, I think she's alluded to in uh, the Coen Brothers' uh, Hail Caesar. Oh, interesting. You know, and, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The lady with do, the cigarette, yeah. Yeah. All they do is she just, you know, the, the editor would just match things up. Yeah. And th- that's it came from the studio system. It was so hacky, you know? Mm-hmm. This is a great way. Yeah. This is a great way of not letting uh, the studios come in and say, oh, we'll fix the movie for you. Well, Hitchcock was so powerful, he wouldn't have to worry about that at the time. But I think this is a fascinating uh, experiment. I I love his technique. He uses, you know, the movement of the cameras and the blocking for jokes, for, well, sick jokes. Yeah. I grant you. It is a sick movie. (laughs) It is a very sick movie. By the way, based on a play, to be fair. Yes. Like, this, I was mentioning before yeah. we started the podcast, you couldn't ask for two more different movies. Uh, they were made within, I guess, 15 uh, years of each other, but uh, they were sort of of the same period. There's but- a certain psychosis, though, to the characters in both movies, a type of you know self-involvement in which people are either killed or, <laughs> or are emotionally killed as a result of your self-involvement. Yes, th- th- their self-awareness is not what I would call accurate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> these two killers who are, you know, they're accomplished students, but they go wrong almost from the beginning. Okay, so we need to talk about that. But have you basically honed down why you think of all the, the, the many Alfred Hitchcock movies, is it, is it purely the technique that draws you to this movie as a it's hidden two gem. Things. It's two things. I, I love the I love the technique. I okay. think I think the blocking is done for very crafty re, crafty yeah. um, reasons. He uses music. This movie doesn't have a score except for the very beginning and the very the end. The lighting's fantastic. Except too. 
oh, uh, they have a cyclorama in the background yeah. that ate, that that gets uh, right. that, that um, so, so this follows a, a sunset. Right. So this Manhattan apartment has one giant window letting in light that the camera shoots at, and it's it's unfathomable how nobody is silhouetted in this movie. I mean, just <laughs> the lighting it must have taken during unless unless they weren't well, they probably weren't shooting outside. That's to be honest. In fact, there's right. no way they're shooting outside. No. So I say it's my own question. Yeah. Um, but basically, they use. Uh, all this this different lighting from outside the window to create new color contrasts in the apartment. So by the time it becomes nighttime in the party, there are neon signs changing the apartment's lighting from blue to red. Yeah, it goes from red, red to green, red it's to green, fantastic. red to green. Yes, I, I, I loved the technique in this movie too, but I also like the story. Yeah, because I the do story too. is very interesting. It's wicked as hell. It uh, it is. Yeah, it's it's what I called it's it's sometimes I love this I have this review of certain films and I love to use it. I had the same review of of John uh, not John Carter um Get Carter with with Michael Caine uh-huh. that I have with this movie where what a nasty little piece of work <laughs> you know this movie just it's trying to be nasty it's trying to be taboo it is trying to challenge your preconceptions of morality. Um, and one thing I also like about this movie is I'm a huge fan of bottle movies. I think anyone listening to this podcast knows this by now. I love movies that take place in one set. And I think often what you would think would be a, a visually boring movie becomes more visually arresting because they've got to use the space they have to accurately use the camera to convey what they are trying to do. It cannot just be about filters and what is the prettiest shot I can make in this alleyway or on this beach. It is I have this room and the camera has to really work perfectly in order to tell the story rather than looking like a filmed play. And boy, I think he just killed it. In fact, this is the best example of single take filmmaking I've ever seen serving the story. More than Birdman, a movie I love. More than 1917. Oh, I don't even like 1917, <laughs> but Birdman, which is a movie I love, I think the camera work in this movie is less gimmicky and serves the story more. Yeah. I, I think Hitchcock was leery afterwards, yeah. after the fact, uh, of the gimmickiness. No, no. Yeah, I, it works. I think I think it forced him so much, uh, you know, t- to rely on the camera yeah. instead of uh, uh, other techniques, although he does use... Uh, the, the use of sound. And also, to be fair, directors have a really unfortunate way of judging their movies based on how much money they made. <laughs> I mean, it's really... Hitchcock was... He, Hitchcock was... Always had an eye on um, yeah, the I bottom think they line. all do. So many of these directors have a movie I love and it didn't make any money. And then I'm disappointed to find out they think the movie's a failure. It's like, no, you made a great movie. Just... Other people didn't like it, but like that doesn't make it bad. It's interesting because sometimes it's the exact opposite. Coppola, uh, Coppola doesn't consider the Godfather movies his best movie, and those people and are just are... pretentious. <laughs> They're more insufferable. No, Coppola himself doesn't think that the Godfathers are his best movies, right? Right, that's right. insufferable. That's yes. even more pretentious. No. That's even worse. Yes, like, that, that drives me. That drives yeah. me crazy too. Getting back to the story, what I love about this movie is it's funny because the, the acting is very nineteen. 19- 50s acting absolutely especially by the young actors who we have to say it now both these actors were homosexuals in that time like real homosexuals and they're playing it as queer they're absolutely playing it as queer and i felt uncomfortable at first the notion of their type of moral decrepitude even being associated with homosexuality i don't think you could do that now especially if you're the writer and you yourself are not a homosexual you know it's kind of like when people use when, when like people try to compare bestiality to homosexuality, it's just, I, I found it at first uncomfortable, 
but it didn't it didn't ruin the movie for me at all. As long as I think as long as the characters, you know, are are real are, people. Yes, as as long as as long as they're true to themselves, as long as uh, true to their characters, right. as long as they're not some grotesque cliche. Yeah. They didn't make it seem um, like they were murderers because they were homosexual. Right. But they, they did same, it for their intellect. Yeah, they it's still it a risky take though. It's still a very risky. You could not do it now, and rightfully no. so, I think. Yeah. Unless it's tough. It's a, it's a really tough thing to judge. It made me uncomfortable as a straight male. Uh, but I wonder, you know, if you're homosexual, if you'd have no problem with it at all, because what does it matter, right? You can be a shitty person in any which way. You can be asexual, you can be shitty. You can be bisexual, you can be shitty. So it's kind of unfair to say, well, you know, you can't be homosexual and a serial killer. Like, everybody gets to be a serial killer. <laughs> and if you don't, you're... you're um you're condescending. Yeah, you're you're being condescending. You could this yeah. movie doesn't work if it was a uh, a man and a wife, uh, two right. lovers. That's right. Uh, part just for plot mechanics, they both had to have grown up. They both had to have been taught at a yeah. boarding school with with James Stewart. It's funny too because uh, I've, by the way, they they never uh, once acknowledge that they're homosexual. No, but it's just in how, fact, it's just in, how they're playing it. Yeah, in fact, um, uh, 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 Brandon. Yeah. Had an affair with uh, one of the young ladies who is, who is the murder victim's uh, fiance. That's right. Uh, they, 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 yeah, they you you have to extrapolate it maybe right from the beginning because when they finish murdering yeah. the, the murder, which happens at the I'm not giving anything away. Yeah, no, they murder it, in the very beginning, right of, the very movie. beginning of the movie, yeah. which is also one of the most with unconvincing a with a rope. With a rope, they don't even show you the murder. It's not well done. They, they, it, it's very the worst badly. part of the it's movie is the un- first minute. <laughs> You're right. It's very unconvincing because yeah. the guy's standing up between them. They're choking and he's barely resisting and he just dies. Yeah. But there's a gag right afterwards. Mm-hmm. Brandon lights up a cigarette as though they just had sex. I mean, it was And that's exactly sick. what... No, I mean, but that's what it was. It was sex to <laughs> yes. him. And also I want to say, as I was watching the movie in the very beginning, I felt like they were playing it gay. But I wasn't sure, and I went on Wikipedia, and I found mm-hmm. out, yes, they were playing it gay. And in fact, in the play, they played even more gay. So I felt better about myself mm-hmm. that I wasn't making these weird, you know, inferences f- that weren't accurate, you know. But it, yeah. but it does come off. They, they they do sound like, they do seem like a uh, a married couple, especially yeah, as the right. movie goes that's on. That's right, yeah. Not a married couple, but... There's a, a sexual tension between them. Yeah, there, there definitely no is. There's there's a dominant one. Uh, John Dahl mm-hmm. plays a dominant one. That's right. And uh, uh, Granger, uh, Farley Granger plays good, the... Uh, good recall. Yeah, plays the, the recessive one. Farley Granger would star in, in Hitchcock's, one yeah. of Hitchcock's best, Strangers on a Train. Okay, so, so for starters, let me, let me talk about this movie for a little bit. I'm not a huge fan of Hitchcock. And one of the reasons I'm not a huge fan of him is that I think everyone who listens to this podcast knows by now I like older movies. I'm a young man, I'm 35, but I like movies from every decade. However, the movies I don't tend to like are the 1950s soundstage movies. I don't tend to like movies that are shot entirely on a lot in Warner Brothers, in the old Hollywood style, where here's the set, here's the scene, and we're going to use cameras like this is a filmed play. And that is the dominant number of movies from that era. I mean, the great classics that I love, whether they be King Rat, or uh, or obviously Citizen Kane, right, or even your movie Winchester 73, they're, they're modern films. They're used with modern filmmaking techniques. And I often feel 
like Alfred Hitchcock, even though he has some movies I really like. I really like Rear Window. I love Rebecca. Shot, by the way, uh, Rear Window, it might not seem like it. That's shot entirely, not only in a inside a studio. Yeah, of course. In the basement studio. Yeah, they yeah. dug out like, Absolutely. floors. It, although it, right. you see a city street right. and cars passing by. Another movie I love, Rebecca, yeah. because I love Jane Eyre. And I think Rebecca yeah. is a horror version of Jane Eyre. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost a ripoff of Jane Eyre. Or I guess Rebecca's technically a novel. I don't know how... Whoever wrote Rebecca didn't get sued by the uh, <laughs> by the Bronte estate. Whoever those people may be, but uh, 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 Rebecca de, Morn- uh, de, Moyer? de Yeah, Moyer? I don't. I don't know. Yeah. But anyways, the point is this: that tends to be the reason I don't like Alfred Hitchcock. To me, he seems like a Hollywood system director in the worst way back then. However. I was, just like you were dreading watching America, America, I was dreading watching this. It all took place on one set. You know, it just, to me, it represented the worst in my head of that type of filmmaking, right? It's it's basically what they were doing in the Coen Brothers. um, What's that movie that takes place about Hollywood? Uh, Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar, Mm -hmm. right? The Hail Caesar style of filmmaking, which I really don't like. And yet it's so subversive. Yes. And it's so masterfully done. Where he's basically saying to someone, like like to me specifically, Sam Levine, I know you don't like these types of movies, <laughs> but watch what I do here. I'm going to, not only am I going to make this kind of movie that you don't like, I'm going to do it with even less cuts. Which means that's even more the thing you don't like, which is <laughs> the filmed play version of it. And you're going to love it. And he did it. He did it to me. It was just like... It felt like he was subverting the very thing about him I don't like, and by and the way he subverted it was by doing it even more, by accomplishing it even greater. But the difference was, you know, instead of being a movie about a dinner party, which is like half of the 1950s Hollywood soundstage movies, he made a movie about a dinner party in which two men commit a murder. <laughs> and then he said, you know, you don't like how... There, there's very little takes because they're like film plays. Well, I'm going to give you no takes and I'm going to do it masterfully. And he did. Um, so I loved the movie. In fact, I rank it now as my number two movie behind Rebecca of the, Hitch, of the Hitchcock movies I've seen. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock was at his best when he was being subversive. And, you know, t- take what you want from film scholars. That's what they like about yeah. him. They seem vertigo and psycho as, as subverting yeah. your expectations. And boy... He does that here. So let's talk about a fault, not only in this movie, but also in plays in general, which is these two characters, in order to drive this story forward, the second they commit this murder, are intent on making sure everyone knows they committed it, <laughs> um, strictly through what they say and not even through what they do. So, you know, this is this is a play. It's based off a play. And when all the... It's hard to watch a movie in which people completely self-destruct in ways that people normally wouldn't. I have no intention on murdering somebody, okay? But if I did, I'd like to think I wouldn't give it away as easily. I'd like to think I wouldn't throw a party right after <laughs> I did it. But see, I, I think it yeah, works they're desperate to get caught. They're, well, no, no, uh, no, they're not. I don't think they're desperate to get caught. I don't think they are. Okay. They're desperate to stick it in the face of the underlings, the sure. people they think are inferior. And they, they invite um, the murder victim's father. Oh, it's brutal. Um, and, and his sister. Fiance. Uh, his I'm aunt, sorry. his father, and his fiance yeah. are all at this party. And they're all just, he, uh, it's mostly Brandon's idea. Yeah. Uh, it becomes really obvious really quickly yeah. uh, that the other one, uh, Philip, is... He almost regrets it right from the start. He almost regrets it right from the start. He is weak. He is one of the. He becomes one of the underlings. It's very, very. But they do clear. something very clever here. 
Um, so one of the characters, what was his name? Bradley? Brandon. Brandon, excuse me. Brandon. Um, you assume that he's the more psychotic one, that he is the one who loves what he's doing here. He loves flaunting that he's committed this murder. He's the cool, calm, and collected one, while the other one, Philip. Yes. Philip is just completely unraveling, just coming apart the scenes, just getting drunk way too fast. But the reason you know Philip is a psychopath is he has a long history of killing animals. So it's important that they did that because otherwise you'd say to yourself, I don't even see why this guy Philip would go along with it to begin with. How did you get how did Brandon get yeah. Philip to, to go along with it? It would yeah. be like, how do you get anybody to go along with such a heinous act if only one of them is a psychopath? But they're both psychopaths. Yeah. The difference is one of them just realizes he should have stuck to animals. He's gone too far. <laughs> And I think it's kind of clear that Philip, the reason he regrets it more is because He'll get he's caught. afraid of getting caught. He yeah. doesn't regret what no, he did he to never, him. He no. never once thinks he's done something wrong. No. He's just terrified of getting caught. Yes. And we haven't even start, started talking about the catalyst that, that makes everything fall apart for them, and that's James Stewart as yeah. the... as the professor. He is... The headmaster, technically. The headmaster. When he comes in... Yeah. Like you said, um, I think, and I think this defies uh, expectations. He's a bastard. A few, a few, a few quick questions, and and Brandon is Brandon is a character who has a slight stutter. Yeah, and when he's stressed, the stutter becomes more pronounced. And as a, a few innocent questions that uh, James Stewart poses to him, and all of a sudden he's stuttering. James Stewart is not the man in this movie that you want to make small talk with. No. So what he does is he comes into the scene, and it's really just masterful, and he has nothing but brutally honest answers for fairly innocuous questions. One of the guys, uh, they invite a, a friend of the murder victims mm-hmm. who once had a thing with Janet, his yeah. fiance, and he says, oh, it's great to see you, Rupert. And he says, Why? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and exactly. Lies there this dead. is a guy with a. Compl- he makes people squirm, and he loves doing it. He loves it. it, and he has a total disdain um, for that type of for people not using their intellectuality. All he wants to do is talk about weighty, ma- weighty matters, and if you don't do that, he sees you as an underling. And the point of this is, they get into a discussion where James Stewart is really cavalierly and quite immorally talking about how it's okay to kill people sometimes, especially if you're intellectually superior to them. And, and he says it so eloquently. Yeah, incredibly eloquently and almost convincingly. <laughs> the murder victim's aunt complains right. about standing in line for tickets. Well, no problem. Simply cut a throat and write this way, yeah, man. Exactly. Exactly. Front of the, says, you know, the, the only thing between you and a front row seat is, you know, a stab in the back with a knife. <laughs> but the other character was saying, did you say Brandon? Yes. Uh, that's the dominant one. The yeah. dominant one. Once he see you know, once he sees that he's hearing what he likes, he's sort of desperate for the teacher to understand or the headmaster to understand that he's done it. He's actually fulfilled the thing that the that the headmaster Jimmy Stewart can only co- contemplate, can only mm-hmm. talk about. He feels like he's gone the extra mile. Um but what James Stewart is in this movie is he's the detective. Yes. E- even though he is a detective who doesn't necessarily, he's not interested in solving the crime for justice, you think, in the beginning. He just knows something's askew, and he cannot help but pry and dig in. He knows something is wrong at he this He keeps party. pulling on threads for his own amusement. Yeah. He knows that these kids, you know, they're all young and they're playing games, and he's just yeah. going to have fun pulling the threads until... He keeps pulling the threads, and he, he suddenly senses something is far far greater at risk here. And maybe 
the only part of this movie I don't like, and I'm not going to give anything away. I'm going to do my best not to give anything away. But maybe the part of this thing I don't like is the more that Jimmy Stewart suspects these kids of having committed a murder, the more he questions his own moral beliefs and everything that he said. And I think it would have been better if he didn't. If he actually just said, okay, I think they've done the thing I've only talked about. But instead, the more he becomes aware that they've killed this kid, this fellow classmate, the more he starts to look back on everything he said and think to myself, oh my God, it's so terrible. And I wish he didn't do that. That's a, that's a question. That's one of my questions that I, that I have. That so we, let's get into your wrap. questions now. Let's okay. do it. Uh, well, well, let's go to favorite line. Okay. I've got one. Mine's in the very beginning. I just, I, I had my notepad on me. I, uh, I technically, I don't like to take notes when I watch movies, but I never had a line I liked better than this one, which is, um, I think, uh, Philip says to Brandon right after they've killed, uh, David, is that his name? David? Yeah. The friend, he goes, he goes, it was quite out of character for him to be murdered. <laughs> and, then, and then, uh, Brandon goes, uh, Yes, wasn't it? You know, it's just, they're almost acknowledging that it's a movie. You know, just like they, say, they, they say about their friend that it was out of, I don't know what preceded it, but he goes, but he says, someone's out, he says something's out of character. Maybe they said David was out of character for being late. And he goes, it was out of character for him to be murdered too. But another sign of their cavalierness of, yeah. of what, they, what they just well, Just done. what a ridiculous thing to say after you just murdered someone's out of their character. Who's, in whose character is it to be murdered? Like who's a what? What person is it a part of their character? Was like, yeah, I've never met someone in my life where I've been like that person will probably be murdered. <laughs> Just seems like it's in their character. This is kind of speaks to their, um, I guess they're they're almost deliberately cavalier for what they do, but it's it's, it's funny because the movie turns. It exposes them as being just as inferior as as every common person because they have all the, the same fallibilities. Right. Rupert gets under their skin. Yeah. Um, Rupert is the Jimmy Stewart character, by right. the way. Right. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a terrific, hilarious scene. While um, it's a perfect bit of blocking, uh, I wanted to mention while um, they're all talking about David. Mm-hmm. David's late. Yeah. He hasn't come to the party, they're and they're worried. all very concerned. Yeah. But we don't see them. We see a little bit of James Stewart talking, and they're they're basically this is small talk. Well, not small talk, but kind of irrelevant talk, unbeknownst to everybody in the party. They have a housemaid, Mrs. Wilson, who is a terrific curmudgeon. Mm-hmm. She is slowly um, taking off yeah. all of the, the the dressings on the chest. It is the best filmmaking in the movie. It is. It Without is the question. slyest, most clever yeah. bit. You're absolutely. She's coming very close yes. to discovering the dead body in the chest, and nobody mm-hmm. seems to realize. Yes. Uh, I'm going to leave it there because I don't want to give too much no, away. We're not going to give away. We're not going to give away the ending. Of this movie. It is the slyest bit of, of filmmaking. In the, I totally agree with you. It's masterful. As far as uh, quotes go, um, um, Janet, who is the, the fiance, yeah. says to Philip. Um, I'll bet you're, you know, because he's he's got a, um, a uh, I think he's got a show. Brandon arranged a show for him. He's a piano player. Yeah, he's a he's an accomplished piano player. And he says, I'll bet you're gonna, I bet you're gonna um, play a foul trick on all of us and become horribly famous. Yeah. Now there's all kinds yeah, of these yeah. uh, premonition yeah. lines, and they they allude to it in the movie. And in fact, he's very he he sees it right away as. He's he's turned off by it because, and it, this is very on the nose, mm-hmm. but they are going to become famous. Yes. But we'll we'll leave it there. <laughs> there there's another line where um, the aunt who who fancies herself kind of a medium, 
she says, she takes a look at Brandon's hands and says, these hands are going to make you very famous. And then he just looks at his hands, terrified. Cause yeah. He, he kind of, um, because he killed someone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What else you got for me? Okay. Um, how many edits are there in this movie? I think there's 10. Now, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm talking about just straight conventional edits, not the pass around edits. Uh, oh, you know what? There, I read there was one specific edit in the movie because when the movie was being uh, projected on screens, mm-hmm. um, they had to have a different camera set up at one point uh, so that when the, when the projectionist changed the reels, it would have to go to a different camera setup. Because I think they changed the reel once in the movie. Like, when the movie's being played in theaters, um, the projectionist has to change reels once. And in that one reel change is when there's an edit. Am I wrong? That No, that could very well be. I'm not sure. Um... So what's the edit? How many edits are in the movie? Well, if you don't count the very first one, that yeah. is, where we, do, yeah. where we come out... Yeah. Oh, the opening credits is a street scene, and then it pans over to the window that this, this is happening, mm-hmm. and then I think there's a cut or a yeah. uh, dissolve in. There's only two other edits. One was about 34 minutes in. I wrote it down, mm-hmm. um, and it was part of that. It, it came at the end of that chicken strangling story. Yeah. And Brendan says, It's a lie. Very emotional, and you cut to yeah. Jimmy Stewart's reaction. And the other time, later in the movie, is when. Um, uh, Jimmy Stewart is You're summing not up what he thinks. Away, are you? I well, you mean you know, it's, it's not good enough. The, the second edit, we shouldn't give anything away. You know what? I'm not going to give it away. Yeah. but it is also at an emotional high point. Yeah. So although he may have to had, had right. to have done it for mechanical reasons, he makes the most. Well, of it. I bet you it was the first one you said that's for yeah. the mechanical reasons because that ha- be. that's a, it's a very short movie. This movie's like a hundred. This movie's basically like. Less than an hour and a half, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's like 110 minutes long. Yeah. It's something very short. I mean, obviously being a play, yeah. but I think that's the that's when the... It also shows you what a master Hitchcock was because he even took into account the fact that when the movie was going to be projected, it would require two reels. Yeah. So the second reel, in order for it to, to work smoothly, um, there would have to be a camera cut in order for the other reel to get played, which I thought was, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's just a sign of his genius. Everything... Yeah. That's a master. Everything is taken into account. Everything is taken into yes. account. I mean, that is that's a master. And and these aren't. They could have been just you know um, throwaway edits mm-hmm. you know, that you had to do. No, yeah, they come at emotional um, peaks. Okay, what else you got? Does see now? I'm afraid to ask this question because I don't want to give it away. But you mentioned that he comes. Uh, Rupert, uh, Jimmy Stewart character, mm-hmm. comes to second guess his. Uh, his you morality. Know, his morality. Do you think his self-defense at the end of the movie holds water? I think I think it's okay. I think you haven't given anything away. I don't. I think all I'm going to say is I'm worried. I don't so I haven't seen the play. And maybe the play suffers from the same thing the movie suffers from. I'm worried that the more Jimmy Stewart became suspicious that these two young men killed somebody very much influenced by his own viewpoints and teachings and the more he becomes to question his own viewpoints and teachings i'm worried they did that so that because they didn't think the audiences would accept it the idea that if they went you think it's a compromise i think it's a compromise i i'm I'm worried it's a compromise i'm worried that they felt that if jimmy stewart said they killed him and i'm okay with it like (laughs) boy oh boy they really took my lesson to heart that people would just totally reject this piece as 
a pure nihilistic point of filmmaking and that somebody had to be a moral center and someone had to change. And it's Jimmy Stewart who changes. The two young men don't change. It's yeah. Jimmy Stewart who changes. And I would, if you want to do something subversive in movies, make, a, make it where none of the characters change. <laughs> that is subversive because I'll tell you, I went to film school, screenwriting 101, your main character has to change. Yeah, you, you, and you can be subversive by picking the character that you don't think is is yeah. at the center or you could have no characters change or you could do that too. that's you what could, the sopranos you could do that did too. by the way the moral center in this movie that the one solid block of decency the is the father played David's by father. cecil hardwick who is a wonderful old pro yeah and he kind of shows up the other actors because he does so little yeah and yet he 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 just has a strong sense of decency he's excellent he calls he calls james jamie's uh jim's Jimmy james stewart, stewart on some of his kind of questionable ethics. Yeah. And at one point he kind of smiled, oh, now I know you're, now I know you're pulling my leg. Yeah. And he says, no. And he finally dismisses it and he doesn't do it with a thunder or with, with, with anger. But part, I think part of David missing and maybe he suspects something, part of that decency says, you know, you know, we need to have a little bit of reverence for, um, for life. He's, he doesn't showboat at all. No. He is, he was perfectly cast. Yeah, he was excellent. Okay, yeah. what else you got for me? All right. Here's my thing. What what um, this is also about the about the ending. Um, Jimmy Stewart says, "Don't give it away." I, I don't think I am giving okay. it away okay. because based on what we discussed, okay, you said um, you've taken my words and gave them a meaning I never dreamed of, and he gets disgustingly sanctimonious here. Yeah. My, you know, you think it was probably a uh, compromise, and it could be. It makes sense. But with that compromise being forced on him, do you think Hitchcock made him so sanctimonious that he wanted the audience to see through it and have some lingering doubts? Maybe this is kind of like like that that quote from America, America. Yeah. Uh, I keep my honor in my heart. He says that in order, or you know, keeping the hundred and ten so that he can keep a little bit of honor. Maybe he just says this. You gave my words a meaning that they were never intended to. That's not true. That is explicitly yeah. not Unfortunately, true. Unfortunately, no. And if anything, maybe Hitchcock thought it, but I know Jimmy Stewart didn't think of it. Jimmy Stewart was actually, you want to talk about conservatives, was a, was a conservative in Hollywood. And I cannot imagine that Jimmy Stewart would have sanctioned. I don't even think Jimmy Stewart would have played the role if his character um was okay with the murder. That doesn't mean Hitchcock couldn't have manipulated him. I didn't like, see keeping it. it from I, him. I saw it just as a character who is going through a change. That's all. That's all I've ever said. That's all I've yeah. ever seen too. And I don't deny the change. Yeah. But I think Hitchcock wants us to think, even if he has changed, he still bears a heck of a lot of responsibility. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's Jimmy full Stewart. Of, he's full of almost, shit. I know. He almost wants to wash his hands completely. You gave yeah. my words yeah. a meaning they they never intended to, and he also says. Um, you would never. I could never let myself be a party. And then he gets re ridiculously smug. So this is the problem with plays. Often, um, epiphanies happen too quickly, too suddenly. <laughs> uh, the problem, you know, you have you know, so a many series that this could come yeah, over gradually. Yeah, I grant you yeah, that. that. I mean, that's, that's just an issue with plays in general. <laughs> is that these epiphanies, these huge, yeah. these huge character changes happen in the course of an hour, and you're just like, no, that doesn't work. Especially when it's not an hour over years; it's an hour over an hour. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Um, what does Hitchcock hate most in this movie? The murder or the arrogance? From oh, the it's murderers. the arrogance. Yeah. 
it's the arrogance. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't. I'm not sure. You Hitchcock's... can't pull that many gags about the dead yeah. body and yeah. hate mur- the murder more than you hate the arrogance of the yeah. murderers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's not. Hitchcock doesn't. You know, Hitchcock doesn't strike me as so like as someone who focuses on being anti-murder. <laughs> you know, Where not, would he be? Right? Yeah. He's like a cop. Where would he be without yeah, murderers? Yeah, that's, that's definitely, he needs murder. Hitchcock. I, I would never think Hitchcock would ever judge a murder. Yeah. You know, he's made too much money from it. It's just. He's just judging the. I think he's in disgust of his character's own ineptitude yes. to pull off the murder. He has nothing but contempt for them. It's, I think that's true. He has nothing but contempt for almost everyone at the party except Jimmy Stewart and the father. Yeah. Everybody else, yeah, they make fun of, of uh, uh, the father's yeah. sister, uh, the murder victims. Yeah. I mean, the odd, they, they allude right. to, by the way, to the movie Notorious, which, yeah. he, which yeah. Hitchcock made right before this yeah. with Cary Grant. And, by the way, the aunt yeah. is the biggest throwback to these kinds of movies that he's subverting, which is Lady at a Dinner Party, who yes. talks like this. She's totally out of place. Yeah. And Stewart has fun with her. Yeah. Yeah. He, he he strips her. He, 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 she doesn't, for the most part, she doesn't realize how how one, much contempt he has. One for her. similarity, not only to Birdman but also to a film like uh, No Country for Old Men, is that this is partly a movie about movies. It's impossible Absolutely. to know anything about movies and to not see this as a direct commentary on the types of. 1950s, 1930s, 1940s Hollywood studio uh, soundstage films that I can't stand. Yeah, hit, hit, yeah, Hitchcock. Hitchcock wanted to shake things up, absolutely, okay. and he wanted to do it in the most familiar setting possible. Yeah. Last question. Okay. Does Rupert's bemused investigation, when it starts, because you, yeah. like you said, you're right, he's a detective. Yeah. When he starts investigating him, is his cruelty almost on par? With Philip and oh, absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah. No, he's he's enjoying being their intellectual superior the way they're enjoying being the intellectual superior to the other party guests. Yeah, he loves lording his intellectual superior superiority over them, but a part of him is still doubting what he believes, and that's what allows him to have fun with it. Yeah. But the more, and he says that all these things, by the way, the more he becomes certain in, in his conclusions, the more he becomes terrified, and also. Uh, ashamed of his own you know his own cavalier uh attitude towards murder itself towards human life it, yeah there is this fantastic scene it's i think it's uh, arguably the second best scene in the movie where he he is toying with philip at the piano at the piano yeah. and and he's got a metronome and, yeah. and jimmy sort of says i thought only kids used metronome no no I, I use it and as he's grilling him Philip falls apart, and you can hear it in his playing. It becomes, first off, it becomes faster. Yeah. Then it becomes off-key. Yeah. And it, it's the, the use of his music while he's playing is so brilliant. I yeah. mean, it is one of my favorite scenes, favorite I, Hitchcock I scenes of all time. A, I just have a problem with how quickly these two guys fall apart. <laughs> but that is the nature of a play. There's just, they got to get it all in within an hour and a half. Storytelling compression. Okay, so I think now is time for Piss Poor Pitches. Steve Poor Pitches. Yeah, Piss okay. Poor Pitches. Piss Poor Pitches. What's your Piss Poor Pitch for this movie? Well, you actually helped help me with this one. I, I see I see you walking in the studio, right, yeah. and say, oh, it's just like Psycho, where you got murder and, yeah. and, and, and these people who, who kill it at random, mixed with Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, so you know, you had the fun. You, you enjoy two guys trying to hide a dead body. Yeah. Psycho meets Weekend at Bernie's. So basically, it is a... You're going to see two of the most atrocious individuals you've ever seen on <laughs> screen, right. but it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, you'll have a gas. Never has, 
And what's really interesting is that the poor father of David and his fiance, they're they're in store for a tragedy, yeah. for an absolute tragedy. But you're having a blast as an audience member. <laughs> Hitchcock, I mean, I mean, uh, the Rupert Carey, James Stewart character says at one point when he when he starts yeah. talking with Philip, I'm in an I'm an embarrassing situation. I seem to be the only one who's having fun. Yeah, Lord knows, you know, I'm a father, and if something as awful and heinous and unthinkable ever happened to my son like this, I would never want them to make this kind of movie about it. <laughs> yes. Not this kind, if anything. Where it's, where it's going to be, you know, where the tagline is like. A great ride in the movie theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can see why this movie was a failure because it is kind of hard to 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 market it. The movie ends right where it should. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can't have the reaction, yeah. or you go out of the movie yeah. horrible. Okay, so here's my piss poor pitch. This is Murder by Numbers meets Dead Poet Society. I was thinking about Murder by Numbers. I was actually yeah, so that was the obvious numbers. part, but I'm actually more proud of the Dead Poet Society. That is pretty good. Because basically, Murder by Numbers is a movie that, if anything, is a ripoff of this movie, where yes. two upper crust, blue blood, you know, prep school academy kids commit a murder just for the sake of committing a murder. But the only difference is... In uh, Rope, they're doing it to impress their teacher. And, you know, in Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams in that film is, he, you know, he's a Christ figure to these kids. You know, he he shows them the way, so to speak. Only his way was one of inner enlightenment and art and beauty and poetry and what makes life worth living. And in, this, and in Rope, the way is, hey, you know, kill someone and see what you're worth. <laughs> yeah, the... the, the, the yeah, they'll they'll drag in the will drag in the audiences because everybody likes a good teacher movie, right? Yeah, absolutely. This was, I mean, uh, Murder by Numbers. I don't know if they were ripping off this or Leopold and Loeb, which this movie right. alludes to. The the, the two, um, I think, University of Chicago students who yeah. murdered somebody. I think a kid actually, um, uh, just to see if they could do it. This is obviously a reference to that. Yeah. Anyways, I think this was a really good. I think these were two really good movies. I think as far as hidden gems goes. I doubt a lot of people have heard of these movies. They're both excellent. Um, it was, and I, you know, it was really funny. Both of us were dreading watching the other person's movie, <laughs> and we both came away with thinking they were the best movie, basically by the director that they chose. I thought it was going to be a chore. I thought it was yeah, going to be a chore. I thought it was going to be a was, chore too. It was amazing from beginning to end. America, America. I was really worried you were giving me some dated old man Steve Hollywood film. <laughs> That I was gonna, even though I've never had to pretend to like any of your movies. Um, although, God, what was it? Uh, Dead Ringers came close. But I actually, <laughs> well, even I had problems with that. Yeah, but, uh, but I actually really enjoyed this uh, to my own surprise. So, Steve, thank you once again. Uh, this is the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. If you are listening, please, please, please rate and review us because that is the way that people find out about this podcast. And we need the money that we are not earning. <laughs> All right, guys, we will uh, talk to you next time. Uh-huh.